Let me also uh, wish you uh, a good Friday morning. It's great to be able to, uh, to be with you today. And I want to uh, just begin by welcoming you to our Good Friday live stream. Uh, we are going to spend some time now reflecting on the events of this day. If you want to follow along, you can do that by turning to Mark chapter 15 in your Bibles. Uh, but I want to say at the outset that, you know, what we're doing here today is really a strange thing. And I don't mean by that uh, the fact that we are doing this by live stream. I think uh, there is some strangeness about that, uh, even if we are starting to get used to some of this. I mean, I'm getting used to preaching to an empty room. Some of you are getting used to showing up to church in your pajamas, right? We know you're out there. Uh, that does feel a little bit strange, and those things might add some strangeness to today, but Good Friday is the strangest of all holidays to begin with. Good Friday reminds us of the strangeness of the Christian faith. See, there's a popular view in our culture that all religions are basically the same. They might get some different packaging when they're packaged at the religion factory, but when you strip all of that packaging away, the contents are basically the same. We ought to seek to be kind to one another. We ought to leave the world a better place than we found it. I mean, isn't that what religion is all about? Well, no, actually. Those things are important, but the essence of the Christian faith is about how we can be made right with God, how we can be in a right relationship with our Creator. And so the Christian faith centers on the person and work of Jesus, and what a fascinating person and work that is. As for his person, Jesus was perfect. He lived a life without sin. As for his work, his miracles were astounding. His teaching and wisdom was unrivaled. Both of those things made people sit up and take notice and say things like, who is this who teaches with such authority? Or who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The work of Jesus wasn't just his teaching and his miracles. The work of Jesus is bound up in his death and resurrection. You cannot separate the work of Jesus from the death of Jesus. And so the death of Jesus, the timing, the manner, and the purpose of it is different from what we encounter with any other religious leader. We know that Confucius died at the age of 72 or 73. He was respected and revered at the time of his death. He was surrounded by his disciples. Though the details of his life are somewhat obscure, Gautama, the Buddha, died in his 80s, respected and revered, surrounded by his disciples. Mohammed died at the age of 63 in Medina, in the lap of Aisha, the favorite of his 13 wives. Jesus was crucified in the prime of life on a Roman cross between two thieves. One of his disciples having betrayed him, another one having denied him, and the rest of them having deserted him. 
But it's not just the timing or the manner of Jesus' death that is significant. It's the centrality and the purpose of it. So I entitled this message, The Beauty and the Ugliness of the Cross. Now, most religions and ideologies have some sort of symbol represents a significant feature of its beliefs. The lotus flower, for example, is often used as a symbol for Buddhism. Its wheel-like shape is thought to convey the cycle of birth and death or maybe the emergence of beauty out of muddy waters. Modern Judaism has adopted the Star of David as its symbol. It's meant to picture God's covenant with King David and how there will be one who will come and sit on that throne forever. Islam is symbolized by a crescent and a star. The crescent originally depicted a phase of the moon, but then it came to be associated with the sovereignty of the ancient city of Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul. Other ideologies have their symbols. The communists adopted the hammer and the the sickle as a symbol of the union between the industrial worker and the peasant. Every faith and ideology has something as its symbol, and the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. Now just think about that for a moment. John Stott has reminded us that there could have been a number of different symbols chosen to represent the Christian faith. The church could have chosen a manger to communicate Jesus' entrance into this world as a helpless baby. We could have chosen a throne to represent the kingship of Jesus, that he is king and ruler over all. The symbol of a dove might have been chosen to symbolize that just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove, so now he descends on us and is with us. The empty tomb with a large stone rolled away from its opening might have been chosen to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. All of those are essential aspects of the Christian faith, but it is the cross that stands at the center of everything. Now, each day this week, I've been putting out a a short video talking about what happened on each day of Holy Week, and today we come to Good Friday. What happened on the day that we call Good Friday? Well, we know that Jesus was arrested late on Thursday night, maybe even after midnight, and then Friday morning brought about a quick succession of trials, and Jesus was passed back and forth between different officials as they sought to decide his fate. Eventually, he was delivered over to Pilate, the governor over the Roman province of Judea. And even though he tried to wash his hands of any responsibility of it, it was Pilate who ultimately passed the motion to have Jesus crucified. So we're going to pick up the rest of the story as it's recorded for us in Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 16 to 39, but I'm going to walk you through them sort of bit by bit. And what we're going to see in this passage is both the beauty and the ugliness of the cross. And we're going to start with the ugly reality of the cross. Let me just read verses 16 to 20 for you. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 
And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. One of the ancient prophecies about the Messiah was given by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came. Isaiah told us many things what we could expect about the Messiah. And one of the things that he said was that he would be despised and rejected by men. And this is exactly what we see here. And it begins with the soldiers. Verse 16 tells us that the soldiers led him away inside the palace, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So you can picture the scene. They're inside the palace. They go to they lead Jesus to one of the rooms or one of the courtyards. They call together the whole battalion. They're all gathered around Jesus. And they do this to perform a mock coronation ceremony. Verses 17 and 18 go on to say this. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Since Jesus claimed to be a king of sorts, they'll give him what they think he deserves. They dress him up in a kingly costume, complete with the crown, except this one is made out of thorns and they twist it onto his head. They give him a mock salute. Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19 then goes on to say this. And when they had mocked him, or sorry, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Notice that it says they were striking him, as in they were repeatedly striking him throughout this entire process. And then they add insult to injury by spitting on him. That's about the lowest you can go, right? I mean, to spit on someone is to communicate to them that they are less than human. And their ruthless torment of Jesus continues in verse 20. And When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Stripping Jesus in this manner removed all dignity from him. The passage will go on to say that later they they gambled for Jesus' garments. The winner presumably taking home a souvenir of sorts. Look what I got. Now these were soldiers. And we might expect this kind of behavior from men who'd been hardened by the brutality of war. But it wasn't just the soldiers who showed utter contempt for Jesus. Let's keep reading. I'm going to read verses 21 to 32. And this is what they say. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The the king of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So it's not clear who we are supposed to be most surprised by in this parade of taunting and mocking. Is it the thieves who were crucified alongside of him? The fact that they were being crucified means that they weren't just common criminals, but probably those who had participated in an uprising of sorts. But even in the face of death, some people remain hostile to Jesus. And I spent some time in the cancer clinic in Vancouver last year while my mom was undergoing treatment. And on one of those visits, I was in the the waiting area while she was having her treatment. And there was another mother with her daughter there. And as they were sitting there, and you could tell that the the treatment was taking its toll on this woman. And and on the TV in the waiting area, a, a religious program of some sort came on. Not a televangelist, but just someone, a host, reading some passages of Scripture that were meant to be comforting. And the woman turned to her daughter and said, turn that garbage off. See, even in the face of death, some people remain hostile to Jesus. Now, crucifixions were public events, and those who passed by wanted to get a look at Jesus, and they also taunted him. And you can hear the sarcasm in their voice as they say, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The religious leaders in particular seemed to take great delight in Jesus' crucifixion. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so as if the physical pain of crucifixion was not enough, they wanted to inflict even more pain with their words. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, and he still is. Another of the verses from Isaiah's prophecy said that the Messiah would be smitten by God and afflicted. And this actually highlights the real horror of the cross because it reminds us Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. Listen now to verses 33 to 37. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So Jesus experienced the abuse of the soldiers. 
He experienced the mocking and the taunting from those who passed by and from the religious leaders. He experienced the complete physical agony of the crucifixion. But that wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part of it was the forsakenness that he felt from the Father. Now, Jesus' normal way of referring to the Father was, My Father. But here he uses the more distant, my God. Now, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. And that psalm opens with those very words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some debate amongst scholars as to whether Jesus quoted that psalm in its entirety or just the first line of it. Based on the misunderstanding of those who heard him, I I think it's probably just the the first line. They thought he was calling for Elijah. There's much in the psalm that encapsulated what Jesus was experiencing at that very moment. In verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 22, he goes on to say, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verses 16 to 18 say, For dogs encompass me, a a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for joy or in for my they cast lots. Now, a number of commentators have pointed out that Psalm 22 actually ends on an optimistic note, and that this, no doubt, was in the mind of Jesus as he began to quote it. Now, that may be the case. We aren't told. What we are told is that he hung on the cross. As he hung on the cross, he cried out in great anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what actually happened on the cross? Was Jesus forsaken by the Father? And if so, why? Well, we read it earlier, but verse 33 tells us that darkness fell over the whole land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Now, by Jewish reckoning, the sixth hour is 12 o'clock noon. The ninth hour then is 3 p.m. And 3 p.m. was also the time when the priests would make their sacrifice every day in the temple. Now, Mark is relating events to us, not interpreting them for us, but we do get the inspired interpretation of this event later from the Apostle Paul. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the picture is that Jesus becomes our sin-bearer on the cross. He bears the full weight of our sin. He becomes sin for us. He's our sacrifice. God is absolutely holy, and He cannot look upon sin, and so He turns His face away. This is what Jesus experienced on the cross. He was despised and rejected by men. He was smitten by God and afflicted. That's the ugly reality of the cross. But there's more than ugliness to be seen in the cross. We should also see the unmatched beauty of the cross. And there are two things in particular that ought to make the cross beautiful in our sight. The first one is that the death of Jesus declared a new reality. 
So right after Jesus breathes his last in verse 37, verse 38 then goes on to say this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's the significance of the curtain of the temple at that very moment being torn in two from top to bottom? Well, there were actually two curtains in the temple. There was the massive curtain that hung at the entrance of the temple. It was to divide the court of the Gentiles from the inside of the temple where only the Jews were permitted. If this was the curtain which was was torn, then the significance would be that all of the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles were wiped out at the cross. And that is no doubt true. There are plenty of New Testament passages that make that very point. So listen to this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Where it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came near and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There was also a second curtain in the temple, and this curtain was inside the temple, and it divided the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Now, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, was the place where God's, where the Ark of the Covenant resided. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's very presence. And you may know that only the high priest was ever permitted to enter into the holy place. And he was only permitted to do so once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the curtain was there to show the barrier between God and man. It blocked access as if to say to sinful humanity this far and no farther. We know something about this curtain from the very detailed descriptions were given in the book of Leviticus. The curtain was roughly 30 feet wide and 30 feet high. It wasn't a thin sheet of sheer fabric, but really the width of a man's hand. It was almost an inch thick. The curtain was tightly woven with multiple layers of thread. It would have weighed hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. This was the ultimate blackout blind. It was as if... And and if it was this curtain that was torn, the significance is that we now have direct access to God. This is what the death of Jesus has opened for us. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews describes the significance of Jesus' death. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain." That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Now, in some ways, the entire book of Hebrews is really a commentary on what took place here in Mark chapter 15. The significance of the torn curtain on the heels of Jesus' death is twofold. We could remember it by saying it's all over and it's all open. It's all over. The death of Jesus means that the sacrificial system is no longer required. No more lambs need to be slain for Passover. No more goats needed to be offered on the Day of Atonement. No more blood needed to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Jesus gave his life as the final sacrifice for sin. Listen again to the way the writer of Hebrews describes this. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice to declare that we could be made right with God. It's all over. We can also say it's all open. The death of Jesus has opened a way for us to have direct access to God. This is the effect of the cross. The death of Jesus on that cross 2,000 years ago has created a ripple effect that's still being felt today. And this ties in with the second reason we can say that the cross is beautiful. The cross is beautiful because it stands as an open invitation. Verse 39. The last verse of our passage goes on to say this. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. See, there was something in the death of Jesus, in the manner in which he died, that caused this Roman soldier who had played some role in the events of that day even to say, truly, this man was the Son of God. The thing I want to say about the death of Jesus is that it's not like other historical events. What I mean by that is that you cannot remain indifferent to the death of Jesus. You cannot read what happened here and say, meh. You either need to join the mockers and ridicule this as foolishness, or you need to join the centurion and say, truly, this is the Son of God. The Apostle Paul would later say this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, my friends, I want to say to you today, which is it for you? Do you see the events of Good Friday as just a strange set of historical circumstances? Or do you see in the death of Jesus the means by which you can have a right relationship with God through his Son? And I'm going to pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus that not only teaches us how we ought to live, but the gift of Jesus that has declared an entirely new reality. That we might now be in right relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the events of that Good Friday as ugly and as horrific 
as crucifixions are, we thank you that by Jesus' death on our behalf, we can now have a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray today for anyone who might be watching, who does not know you, I pray that they would know that they can be restored in their relationship with their creator by trusting in what Jesus has done on their behalf and placing their faith in the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.